Welcome to Francophiles. From the French Embassy in Washington, D.C., we explore the links between the United States and France and the history, culture, and connection that exists between the two. I'm your host, Tracy Madigan. Today, saving animals from inside a lab. Dr. Pierre Conizzoli works at the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. Yes, the zoo right here in D.C. that attracts two million visitors every single year. Dr. Comizzoli works with the giant pandas at the zoo and many other animals too. As he says, not just the cute ones with the spots and the stripes. His team works hard to artificially inseminate animals whose populations are dwindling. He was raised in France and now calls the U.S. home. We talked about the urgency of the work he does and we clear up some misconceptions, if you'll pardon the pun. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about what your current project is. So currently we have a, a research team working on the preservation of biological samples from different wild animal species. Uh, it sounds a little bit esoteric, but uh, the types of techniques that we are developing are techniques that have been developed already for livestock species or even for humans, which is freezing uh, for the future semen samples or oocytes or reproductive tissues in liquid nitrogen and keeping them alive for later use. So we are using uh, experimental models also to develop these uh, techniques, but really the research program is really based on the possibility of collecting samples from different wild animal species, preserving them in liquid nitrogen and being able to use them for, uh, for the future for genetic analysis, population management, or even to produce babies. You have an indirect spokesperson or an indirect uh, animal that allows you to share with the world the important work you do, and that would be the panda, right? You do so much important work on so many different animals that are at risk of extinction, and it's thanks to the panda that everybody recognizes the importance of your work, etc. Tell us a little bit about the variety of animals you work with. Thank you so much uh, for, for, for highlighting that because this is true that, uh, and we are lucky because the giant panda is very a good illustration of all the efforts that we are conducting in terms of research because as you know, uh, the last cub, uh, Chao Chiji, that was born uh, almost three years ago now, uh, was born from an artificial insemination with frozen semen, from semen that had been frozen and, and kept in the liquid nitrogen for several years before we were able to use it. So that's a perfect example. But of course, uh, uh, we do not work on the giant panda. We develop the techniques mainly on other carnivores like cat species, especially cheetahs, clouded leopards, um, amur tigers. And we do work also on a lot of less charismatic species like antelopes or gazelles or deer species. So tell us a little bit about that. How high are the stakes across the different species? The numbers are super dramatic for, for panda bears where you have a 24 to 36 hour window in which you can artificially inseminate the panda and then you have to wait again for a year if it doesn't, if that doesn't work. It's not always that dramatic, is it? No, it's not always dramatic like that, but I would say that now for the giant panda, we reach a stage where we have a pretty good understanding of what we have to do and what's supposed to happen after we 
intervene. Uh, I would say that, well, of course, really the, the stakes are high because we have only one chance a year f to produce a cub. But for other species, unfortunately, sometimes, well, they, they cycle, they can really conceive all year round, but we have absolutely no idea about the biology of reproduction of those species. And we have no idea how to intervene, how to make sure that we can help them to overcome some fertility problems. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the, I mentioned before, what's at stake. Certain species are at higher risk obviously, of, of, being, um, of, of having their numbers dwindle. How do you feel that pressure, you and your teams behind the scene? How do you take into consideration the actual numbers remaining in a species when you know how to prioritize what to work on? Yes, yeah, this is true that uh, it adds to, to the pressure when we know that we have really to deliver. We need to be successful, otherwise we are kind of... Uh, wasting our time or we are postponing a future success or and for some species of course like the giant panda the, the clock well it used we used to say that the clock was ticking for the giant panda now we are in a much better situation because the global population of giant pandas in breeding center has really boomed over the past 10 to 15 years. So we are safe on that, that, that part. But uh, for the white population, we have less information, but we think that things are getting a little bit better. But uh, for example, uh, other carnivores uh, that are uh, top predator like the tiger or the cheetah or the clouded leopard, we know that they are losing their natural habitats. We know that the white populations are decreasing very quickly. And the problem is that we have many, many, many challenges to reproduce them in zoos or breeding centers because those animals, they have needs in terms of their environment, in terms of the season, in terms of their partners. So they cannot really you know, multiply like rabbits, unfortunately. Mm, yeah, yeah, that would be the gold standard, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. So what is it like behind the scenes? When you're working, you have a very rich team, everybody has a role, everybody has an important part to play in this process. You do not have the advantage of knowing that success happened immediately. You have to wait. You have to wait for different periods of time to find out whether or not it was a success. What are the emotions involved in that? Usually, um, it's, uh, it's, I would say that after we know that we have uh, performed uh, an artificial insemination in the best condition that we can really think of, um, and uh, we think that you know everything was was good from the sedation of the animal, from the quality of the samples, from the procedure itself. And one really uh, key aspect is really to go as fast as possible. Also, is to to minimize the time the the female is sedated because it's much better for her than after that to recover quickly and to 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 have a successful pregnancy. But uh, then after that, the wait is sometimes very very stressful because we have no idea and f like that for a lot of species if the procedure has been successful or not. We have to wait for weeks or months 
most of the time, really to start to see some signs of, okay, do we have a pregnancy or not? And then after that, if we know that there is a pregnancy, is the pregnancy healthy or not? We have no way to, de to, to know that. But the, 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 the worst is that when we know that well, it didn't work, but there is no way for us to know exactly but where really the problem was, at what stage. And it's really difficult to investigate, you know, back <laughs> in time and to try to understand how, what should we modify? And it's, uh, it's really a, still a black box for a lot of species. When y there is a healthy birth and it is a success, do you feel similar to how a parent would feel? <laughs> of course, of course. It's a, it's a, it's a huge satisfaction because uh, as you mentioned, uh, there is a lot of work behind the scene. It, it involves uh, a, a large group of people. I mean, from the, you know, the, 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 the animal caregivers to the nutritionists, to the veterinarians, to the people specialized in behavior, uh, people like me specialized in reproduction. I mean, for the giant panda, it's a team of uh, almost 35 people working together jointly for multiple weeks before we really uh, perform a procedure. So, of course, when there is a success, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fantastic because we, we have the impression that, yeah, we all work together and it worked. And, of course, we thank nature for being <laughs> so, so, so nice with us and for offering us, you know, uh, um, validation of our efforts. But uh, I would say that, yeah, it happened. Uh, I, I, I was lucky enough to have that satisfaction with giant pandas multiple times at the National Zoo, but uh, I wish it was the same for other species that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that, because when we think of the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., we think of the zoo, the animals, the cages, the things to visit, the, all the information that's there for us. You actually work physically very close to that area, but so many other things are going on behind the scenes, research, following up everything that you do. Tell us the differences in animals that you work on you say that they don't they're not all one size fits all your the procedures that you have to do the teams you have to work with look very different based on the animal that you're working on yes and that's kind of um, the complexity also of uh, having animals in a, in in a zoo and i would say that uh, my colleagues from the veterinary uh, staff they know very well you know this complexity of the diversity of the animals in terms of size anatomy uh, you know sensitivity to some environment or some disease and then after that of course in terms of veterinary medicine everything is really different from one species to the other so for us in terms of even if i am a veterinarian i work more on the research side but whenever we're trying to understand the basic reproduction or the basic traits of physiology in some species we also face a lot of differences between one species to the other so we collect a lot of information all the animals that the public can see you know in exhibits all those animals are studied very very closely we collect samples non-invasively most of the time you know even you know fecal samples or urine samples on a regular basis and we learn we, we extract a lot of information from those samples and we keep adding, you know, to the big book of 
biodiversity and we try to understand really exactly what's what's going on in those species how can we improve uh, well of course my veterinary colleagues you know how can we improve their health or how can we maintain them in good health and uh, animal welfare is extremely important if you want to have success in terms of reproducing or multiplying those animals and the same for nutrition and and for us we collect a lot of samples we learn a lot and uh, i would say that the 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 most important people also are the keepers who are seeing the animals every day they notice the slightest difference in their behavior and they can tell us mm, i think that today you know it's a little bit different than the last week and maybe something is going on so this is really extremely important information because in the veterinary field as you know the animals are not talking to us we cannot really so we have really to use a lot of different clues and uh and it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a game uh, you know it's a guessing game uh, 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 most of the time but we have a lot of animals you know a uh, uh, lot of people sorry looking at those animals and on the top of that you have some species like the giant panda where they have cameras on them all the time so it's uh, it's really 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 intense in terms of you can imagine the huge amount of data that we are collecting that after that that we have to analyze but this is fantastic because this is really for us really the value of having those animals i mean if we had to do the same kind of studies in the wild it would take decades really to really understand the biology or even the physiology of those species but we are lucky to have them you know in breeding centers or in zoos they are well maintained uh, they are happy, you know, most of the time, uh, except when they are a little bit grumpy with each other. But uh, this is a huge value in terms of biodiversity conservation is all the information that we can collect on those animals that can help after that, not only, you know, the animals that you see at the zoo, but also the populations that are in their natural habitat from the same species. It sounds very satisfying as a veterinarian to have access to that information and to know in an altruistic way that you're making it a difference, right? You really are. And especially when you compare it, we said before that it takes a long time before you know success, etc. Mm -hmm. But you're right. If you were doing it in the wild, I mean, this would take decades to do what you're achieving yes. on a regular basis with your team. Exactly. Yes. And I would say that... Uh, also, we have to be honest about the, you know, the animals that you see also in, uh, in at the zoo. They are not necessarily always part of very complex research projects. They are also considered as ambassadors. I mean, it's very in terms of education, outreach is very, very important for people to see the animals for real because you can see, you know, you can see pictures, you can see beautiful documentaries on TV, but when you have this direct contact visual contact, not, <laughs> not physical contact with the animals. But it's, it's so important, you know, especially for the kids, for them to understand. And, and we need really, we have, you know, to, to train and to educate this next generation of people who then after that are going to be very, very supportive of whatever we do, you know, in zoos or in breeding centers or even in, in the field, you know, to preserve, uh, you know, biodiversity. You make a point of pointing out that this is not a silver bullet. The work that you do is not, it's just a small part of a bigger, bigger project when it comes to conserving these species. Is that right? Yeah. Well, our mission is really whenever we have, you know, animals under our care is to make sure that they are healthy. 
that we're going to be able to produce babies. And of course, it's not only producing babies, but it's also maintaining a genetic diversity because you want to avoid inbreeding. You want to make sure that you preserve all the genetic diversity of the population that you have under your, your care. And most of the time, we don't really have a lot of those animals from a given species at the same place in the same. So we exchange a lot of animals with other zoos or with with other breeding centers. So this is part of a very huge, it's called the uh, species survival plan, uh, part of the uh, Association of Zoo and Aquarium in North America. So those are programs for given species where you make sure that you exchange the animals and that you 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 have this good genetic diversity and you you really uh, make sure you ensure that the next generation of those animals are going to be healthy and they're going to be thriving and they're going to be, you know, sustainable. So that's the very, very important. And if at some point you have the chance to reintroduce some of those animals back in the wild, well, you know that you have done a good job because those animals, they have preserved all their genes. They can adapt to their natural habitat really quickly. They are not really sensitive to, um, to some, spe uh, some disease. And so this is very important. So uh, I would say that the, the maintaining healthy population is very important and as I said before the problem is that sometimes animals are very difficult to breed because they don't have enough space or they don't have necessarily they don't like their partners mm -hmm. well that's what happens with the cats most of the time they don't like their partners even if the genetic match is very very good we really need to have their cubs really to sustain the population they don't like each other so we have to develop those techniques of artificial insemination and unfortunately as you can imagine animals you know they're not immortals at some points you know they pass away so we need also to make sure that their genes are preserved in liquid nitrogen you know for the future and whenever we want to use the genes you know to reinfuse them in the population later on we have them so that's extremely important so that's really the main role of our zoos and conservation breeding center but then after that you know you have our, our colleagues also working in the field and preparing, you know, the, the field either for introduction or translocation of animals. And sometimes we don't necessarily need also to think of reintroduction of species. It's just the protection of the natural habitat. So this is really the, the main, I would say, the, 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 the two main component of animal conservation is what you do, you know, in the wild to protect the natural habitat and what you do then after that in what we call ex situ, really in zoos and conservation breeding center, where it's not only about reproduction, because it's also nutrition, genetics, and ecology, also behavior. It's a lot of things that we can do also outside of their natural habitat for the preservation of biodiversity. How far back do the samples go? Because as part of genetic diversity, sometimes you could be inseminating today's female with the semen of an animal that's passed away. Yeah, we have experience with that. Uh, it's a species called the black-footed ferret. Uh, it's uh, an endemic species from the northern uh, continent in America, from the western plains. And that species was, the black-footed ferret was almost extinct back in the 1980s. There was a rescue program um, that was started uh, in collaboration with the National Zoo um, more than 40 years ago. And at that time, they started really to collect semen from 
some males that had been, you know, uh, captured in the wild and then after raised in captivity. And uh, and actually, one of my colleagues, Dr. Jogel Howard, managed to produce kits that were um, from a female. It was uh, in early in the early in the 2000s, but the, the semen had been preserved almost 25 years before. So it was kept in the liquid nitrogen for a long period of time, but then the genes were reinfused into the, the current population. So that's, I mean, that's a proof of concept. And uh, I wish I had many more examples to, to mention like that, but it, it works, it's possible. And, uh, but this is, usually the best example that we like to, uh, to mention. Yeah, that's fascinating. Tell me a little bit about the diplomacy involved. If we go back to our panda example, the, the, the work that you did and the successes that you had, they, those pandas are loaned to us, are mm -hmm. they not? Yes. And then the work that you do, the babies that you're successful with, they're they still belong to China as well. Yes, but that's an agreement that we have with uh, with China, and uh, this is the same agreement that China is also establishing with other countries. I mean, they are deploying, you know, uh, couples of pandas a little bit all around the world. They are wonderful ambassador for uh, for China, but the as long as you have those uh, giant pandas under your care. You have to commit, of course, to, to take care of them pretty well, but also uh, you need to study them, which is what we've been doing for many decades now at the National Zoo. And also you have to produce babies. And then those babies are, they still belong to China and they have to go back to China in breeding centers to be part of the management of the captive population of giant pandas because more than 90% of the giant pandas in breeding centers are in China. They are just, you know, they are just few animals sent, you know, all across the world. And it's an international collaboration. We exchange a lot of information with our colleagues in North America, but also in Europe, in Asia. And of course, we work really, really closely with our colleagues in China because they have a lot of experience. But what's exciting is that on our side, we've been also able to kind of um, add a little bit of, uh, you know, optimizations and adjustments on the technique. So it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting, to me, it's a, it's a, a diplomacy for, for science, but it's also science for diplomacy. So it goes really both ways. Mm -hmm. My final question to you is this one. You talk about the species survival plan. Mm -hmm. That sounds very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, a, it's just a, a system that we have for uh, different species to make sure that the, the, the genetic diversity is well managed. Uh, because again, uh, a single zoo cannot really house a lot of different individuals from a given species because uh, it takes too much. It would take too much space, and also for the zoo, I mean, you don't want to have in your collection only one. Even if you have a large group, only one species, it wouldn't be very attractive also to the public. So we exchange a lot of animals all across uh, North America, uh, and it's of course uh, it involves a lot of logistics. Um, and uh, sometimes animals, they, they need a little bit of time to readapt, you know, when they ha whenever they are moved to a, a, a place to another one, they need to time to uh, reacclimate a, a little bit. But um, uh, that's the reason also we are developing 
those assisted reproductive techniques is to try to avoid, in some cases, the, 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 the transfer of a male, for example, if we are able to collect the semen from a male, you know, on the West Coast, and we can freeze that semen and we can bring back the semen here on the East Coast without and then use the semen for artificial insemination. Well, I mean, that really avoids, you know, the, 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 the stress and the cost really associated with the transfer, the physical transfer of an animal from coast to coast. Dr. Pierre Camizzoli, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think of the show and who you'd like to hear us talk to. Please subscribe and rate this podcast. That way more people will hear about it. Thanks so much for listening. Au revoir.